ask a squirrel what's its thang. Go on, ask it. The answer will probably be something along the lines of acorns. Now ask a dung beetle. The name is a bit of a giveaway here. I'm a roller baby, is surely what it would say. I'm a beetle Sisyphus, pushing a huge sphere of elephant crap ten times the size of me up a hill using only my hind legs. And what does the front part do while the back legs roll, you might ask, sensing the need for a follow-up question? Well, social media, of course. Dung beetles do a lot of social media. When someone once asked the poet William Stafford what his thang is, or was, he's dead now, he would say, oh, you mean the way it is, and pull out one of his poems. This one. There's a thread you follow. It goes among things that change. But it doesn't change. People wonder about what you are pursuing. You have to explain about the thread. But it is hard for others to see. While you hold it, you can't get lost. Tragedies happen. People get hurt or die. And you suffer and get old. Nothing you do can stop times unfolding. You don't ever let go of the thread. Last week, I let go of my... F Last week, I let go of my thread for three or four days. By day three, I was staring out the window mournfully, nursing a coffee and thinking about that Schopenhauer quote from his essay Studies in Pessimism, which goes, Of how many people may it not be said that hope made a fool of them until they danced into the arms of death? Three days it took for me to be almost ready to rumble my way to eternal rest. thread I let go of? Writing stuff, consistently, even if just a few paragraphs a day, which is how this has been written, and in so doing, creating a thing, uh, a something, contributing to a project. I usually have some kind of writing project on the go, a project being something more conceptually contained than jotting down a poem or a few thoughts in a notebook or on my phone when the mood takes me. Sometimes it's a book project or an art project. Most recently, podcast popcorn. In the last few COVID months, I have started three of these podcast projects, done a couple of episodes for each one, and then founded. This current iteration <laughs> might be the fourth foundering, for all I know. But at least it feels like the thread is back in my shaky paw. And that feels good. What that means for me, but maybe for you too, is that whatever else is going on in our lives, good and bad, suffering suffused or not, we're more or less on track with the thing that holds the most intrinsic value for us. In the doing of our threads as well as holding on to them, 
reminding ourselves that this is what we're fundamentally about in some way, although not being caught, hopefully, in the in the ego version of that, the sort of the identity formation version of that. But anyway, in in holding on to <laughs> these threads, well, life seems to then jog along, I don't know, in a sort of okay fashion, or maybe even uh, at a fairly nice trot occasionally. Schopenhauer had lots of flow, lots of joy in his life. Yes, his life was a somewhat eccentric one, highly so, in fact, but even then, for this Morrissey of 18th century philosophical pessimism, life did in fact rock, dense and all. Otherwise, why would he have written so much about it from his deliciously morbid gaze? So how do we lose for a while or longer our thang, our thread, our life force? I was talking about this with someone yesterday who told me that when she was about six or seven years old and answering the usual barrage of what do you want to be when you become one of us questions, she would usually respond with ballerina because it rhymed with her name, Nina, Nina the ballerina, of course. And in this way, Nina the ballerina showed not only a precocious grasp of the workings of nominative determinism, but also the ways in which our culture requires us to fit our multiple selves into one or two overriding identity categories, preferably ones that have high social status for our society, for our culture, and so for the ears in which that young human animal is growing up in. In 1989, the National Opinion Research Center in the US released their first list of NORC scores showing 800 occupations ranked by prestige. Brain surgeons and other physicians scored 86.05, leading all the other professions by a long shot. No surprise there. Presumably, I don't know, this was all scored out of 100, with George Herbert Walker Bush, being second to God, of course, emerging with a perfect 10. Psychotherapy, as a profession, had a score of around 62, in 1989, similar to purchasing managers and police supervisors. It feels as if in the interim period society has awarded a few more social cutis points to the shrinks, but so what? My current role as a therapist is definitely one of my threads. I love almost everything about it, and if I didn't need to do it to earn a living, I would do something like it in an unpaid capacity. Why? you might ask. Well, because it gives me a kick. It makes me feel more alive and, and connected to other human animals who are trying to work out some of this stuff for themselves too. I think we're talking here about the difference between intrinsic and extrinsic motivation, which is also the key, I believe, to this thready topic. Because this is how I think we often start, with a sort of being or becoming focus. The being and becoming path is incredibly fruitful and it seems to be a necessary stage in human development. The downside of this though is that it relies on a form of extrinsic motivation to keep us going. Some sort of super ego dreamer who goes something like, wouldn't it be cool if you were a blah or, a, or became a blah, right? But the downside of becoming a blah on on purely extrinsic motivation alone, you know, that sort of wouldn't it be cool if uh, the, the future now equation, right? The downside is that it can often make us miserable. 
For this is also a mode that accentuates our deeply hardwired habit of social comparison. Psychological research now shows that both downward and upward comparing of our lives, aspirations, achievements, to those of others, doesn't seem like it's very good for our mental health. It may even be utterly disastrous for our mental health, which is a pity, as all of our social media is now driven by FOMO and up-down social comparisons, none of which seem to be working out for us in terms of our general well-being, it's fair to say. If you should leave here tonight, feeling not quite sated. No, not Satan. <laughs> feeling unfulfilled. Please remember that this is a human condition. Equally so, in real-life relationships. For example, you feel good because you and a friend both entered a poem into a competition and yours got commended and theirs didn't. Or bad because they got a book deal a year later which obviously craps all over your one commended poem. Neither comparison, if grown and tended in the mind, seems to engender well-being. And unfortunately, the seeds, the thoughts for the most part, but also images tweeted, posted on Instagram or Facebook, are always going to be there as potentially destabilizing entities. The only thing we have any control or choice over is to how much watering and tending of certain seeds we want to be involved with and what we expect will come from that. Watering and tending toxic seeds happens to a much larger extent when we lose sight of our threads, I believe. Imagine an older, twinkly-eyed grandma lioness saying to her grand cubs, so kids, what you gonna be when you grow up? Lions <laughs> would be the only possible response to this ridiculous question, yeah? So what are you gonna be when you grow up? Uh, humans. <laughs> A human animal. <laughs> I mean, that really, you know, that, that's what we should say. Um, you know, just like a six-year-old Nina might equally have said, I'm going to find a way to utilize my innate and native skills as well as whatever bits of shiny paper I've accumulated through reading books and writing essays to survive and ideally thrive in this hyper-capitalist winner-takes-all fame money game we like to call a career or a job. career, from the Latin carus, which means wheeled vehicle, which in the 16th century started to take on the meaning of a road or a race course. And that is what it has become for most of us now, a road, a race course, a human hamster wheel or maze which ejects us at a certain age for uh, a little bit of thumb twiddling retirement if you're lucky, and then death, always death, which Unfortunately, we tend to forget when, when we're on the, on the hamster wheel answering an email from our line manager at 10 o'clock at night. But that's different to your threads, to your fang, whatever that is. 
Had young Nina been asked instead what it was that made her feel most alive, most included in this truly magical living ecosystem of human-animal culture and the greater world, the real world, which we try to dominate with our little conceptual finagling and manipulation, but will have the last word, (laughs) caring nothing for us, sorry to say, If she had taken that on board, she would have known what to say, right? She would have said something like, I like running and jumping and being athletic, reading, I love to read, acting, dancing, playing and making plays and thinking up new games for my friends, also play fighting or even more fraught versions of that in the playground. This is what it means to do rather than be or become me now in the fullest way possible. That's what she would have said. See, they always used to be there, even when this always grass and a sang and dance about a high rise. And you were laughing at my helmet hat, laughing at my torch. But this is not the only way to find your thread if you're not sure what yours might be. Here are a couple of ways, if you're thinking, well, what's my thread? Okay, well, here are a couple of ways. One way, what is it you most regret not having done yet or not having given enough attention to at this point in your life? Another way, imagine two friends at your funeral talking about you and the stuff they loved about you, how you lived your one wild and precious life, to use that sort of Mary Oliver line, to the full. How you lived your one wild and precious life to the full. What would you like them to say of you as they speak with love and maybe even a certain amount of rose-coloured, backward-casting admiration? Or let's stay with death for a moment, shall we? I mean, Schopenhauer would approve. To what extent is your vision of a life well lived similar or different to Mary Oliver's in her poem, When Death Comes? This is a poem like the Stafford poem that I actually know by heart. So I'm going to I'm going to actually recite this now to you. And it goes like this. Maybe as you listen, which of these lines resonate or don't? When death comes like the hungry bear in autumn, when death comes and takes all the bright coins from his purse to buy me and snaps the purse shut. When death comes like the measle pox, when death comes like an iceberg between the shoulder blades, I want to step through the door full of curiosity, wondering what is it going to be like, that cottage of darkness? And therefore... I look upon everything as a brotherhood and a sisterhood, and I look upon time as no more than an idea, and I consider eternity as another possibility, and I think of each life as a flower, as common as a field daisy, and as singular, and each name a comfortable music in the mouth, tending, as all music does, towards silence, and each body a lion of courage and something precious to the earth. When it's over, I want to say, all my life, I was a bride married to amazement. I was the bridegroom taking the world into my arms. That's my line. Well, it all is, which is why I learnt it. But 
that's the part I really love. When it's over, I want to say all my life, I was a bride, married to amazement. I was the bridegroom taking the world into my arms. When it's over, I don't want to wonder if I've made of my life something particular and real. I don't want to find myself sighing and frightened or full of argument. I don't want to end up simply having visited this world. If you like, you might even try writing your own version of this poem, which I guess is to say, where is it you feel you would like to be uh, in terms of your relationship to yourself and your life uh, when death comes for you? And if you do write that poem, please share it with me. I'd love to read it. Another idea, maybe bringing in some social energies because we are such social creatures. Um, but without turning it into a sort of win-lose game or another zero-sum equation such as they're everything but I'm nothing, maybe you can ask yourself, who do I really admire? A person who seems to be working their threads in a way that is appealing to you. And how might you do some version of that if you weren't so caught up in the, in the being and becoming game as we all are to some extent? You might even want to think a little bit more about that itchy binary of, you know, they're everything, I'm nothing. They're everything, I'm no thing. And maybe even whilst you're thinking about that, have a listen to this little poem by uh, Mary Rufel. Mary Rufel's Rufelness, uh, I like to call it, uh, which is, <laughs> which goes like this. Uh, it's called Broken Spoke. And it goes, you grow old, you love everybody, you forgive everyone. You think, we're all leaves dragged along by the wind. Then comes a splendid spotted yellow one. Ah, distinction. And in that moment, you are dragged under. One of my threads, my need to make stuff, drawings, essays, poems, novels, songs, and in this case, podcasts, has, has never been my career. I turned it into a career for a year or two, pitching and writing some articles for magazines and newspapers. But apart from the writing and research itself, the rest of the freelance writer's game was just so damn hard, such a slog, that it didn't really add up for me in terms of the being and becoming game. You know, getting my name at the top of a screen or a page. So what? Big deal. But this is only because I now realize that my writing thread has always been fundamentally about connecting to myself and maybe one or two other real people, like you, listening or, or reading this, hello, rather than trying to feed or, or make money from the culture machine. This realization took about 30 years of angst and self-recrimination to come to fruition. It really did. Um, and maybe it's only coming to fruition sort of around now. And, you know, I don't know, sometimes our threads will only reveal themselves fully to us over a lifetime of finding them, then losing them, then finding them again, and, and so on and so on until the end. So I guess we need to be patient with our threads. Not one of my strengths. And, and while we're working on our patience, just plugging away at the things that matter to us. 
you know, it's, it makes me think of that Franco horror line. What's it? You know, the only thing to do is to continue. Can we continue? Yes, we can continue because it is the only thing to do. Can you do it? Yes, you can do it because it's the only thing to do. Something like that. Um, but in order to keep doing that, I think two things need to be in place. And one of them is knowing what your core value-driven threads are. So mine are making stuff, especially creative stuff, therapy, the mind, consciousness, and having a, a meaningful and sincere relationship with nature, including human animals, but, but even more so those of other species. Um, and then I think the other thing that's important is a willingness, but also kind of logistical strategizing and even concerted efforting, if that's a word, it's not, of uh, to a, a concerted efforting to your value-driven activities, you know, giving them the time, energy, and the t and attention, T-E-A-T -E uh, for short, um, time, energy, attention that they need. The tricky thing about time, energy, attention, tea, good tea that is, is that it's costly. I'm writing this article on a Monday morning. I could instead be doing more financially remunerative work, maybe some more clients or, or writing paid copy for someone or sitting in the garden scrolling through Twitter, which would be easier, much more fun, and maybe I'll do some of that too. But either way, our threads do seem to require a certain amount of devoted application. They require devotion. Otherwise, how to differentiate what really matters to us that requires good quality tea from us as opposed to the stuff that passes the time in some fun or interesting ways. And usually that's the stuff that gets most of our free time, doesn't it? Certainly it does for me. Devotion, I think, is the right word for our threads. I, yeah, I mean, it's a word that has a somewhat sacred air to it. You know, it comes from the Latin um, uh, devolvere, uh, which means to dedicate by a vow, to sacrifice oneself, to promise solemnly. And if this is the case, how could our devotion and our devotional activities not require our best tea, our best time, energy, and attention? I doubt the majority of people getting out of bed on a Sunday morning to go to their weekly church service feel like it to any extent. Nor the mother, though hopefully more fathers doing this too, who has to change her baby's nappy at three in the morning and then is woken up again an hour later for feeding, so sleep deprived that she walks around like a zombie with demented raving thoughts. We're talking about devotion here, which you might say is our most precious resource because it gets stuff done eventually. Um, and some, and usually late in my case, even when a part of us is really not in the mood for doing it. That lazy, can't be asked part, in my experience, is with us and deeply involved in our thinking and impulses about 95.6% of the time. In my case, maybe even 95.7%, which is a shame. But Perhaps it also gives us a clue as to how we might follow our threads, carving out a 4.2% or 4.3% or maybe even a 5% space for ourselves in which to drink some thread-suffused tea. For devotion, I believe, calls not as much to our strengths, but let's say to our weaknesses. I ask everyone 
I engage with as a psychotherapist to do a character strength survey because I think it's useful to play to our strengths if and when we can. But our so-called weaknesses uh, are perhaps more key to this whole topic as these underdeveloped muscles, these alignments or misalignments of our personalities can often get in the way of us doing some of the slightly heavier lifting that certain life tra trajectories require, whether we like this or not. One of my weaknesses is uh, perseverance. I think it is for many of us. Um, you know, finishing what one starts, persevering in a course of action in spite of obstacles, getting it out the door, taking pleasure in completing tasks, etc. But when it comes to my threads, I do actually persevere, even if in a somewhat wonky fashion, and in certain cases with tremendous resilience, but always in fairly small, well-chosen amounts. So maybe this could be a path for Nina, who is thinking about all of this at the moment. The path being, play to your weaker strengths if you can. In other words, develop them, but don't overtax them, as well as your stronger ones that you just have there by default. Let's imagine for a moment that those character traits are actually set. I, I believe they are in some way, which is not to say we can't develop the weaker muscles too, but, but maybe that's not the most fulfilling or interesting path to take. Let's imagine that perseverance, self-regulation, you know, just sort of how you get yourself, um, calm yourself down when you've gone a little bit freak out, uh, you know, all of that stuff. Um, I don't know, stuff like maybe for some people, spirituality, you know, that big picture, right brain spirituality. Let's imagine that some of these are not your strongest character muscles. But I think you would maybe also agree that they're kind of needed to some extent for what you want to achieve or, or maybe have in your life, how you want to hold on to your thread. Now imagine you had long-term COVID as unfortunately you may have one day or some variant of that and you're too weak and tired to do anything much other than a few hours of your paying job and maybe just 20 to 30 minutes or maybe even just five minutes of of doing of, of holding on to your thread devotedly which thread or which threads would you give your precious fleeting tired and somewhat bedraggled now time attention and energy your now tea to which thread would you give yourself to if you only had five or ten minutes of time each day to give to it also how would you hold yourself accountable in some way to your devotion without having let's say all of that scaffolding and support of a more formal religion or a, or a boss sending you emails at 7am in the morning demanding those reports that should have been done yesterday. Our bosses, I think, are, are an important part of this. What is your relationship like with your inner boss, what Freud would call the superego, you know, the, the, the cultural and family dictates or core beliefs stamped like a trademark logo into our souls? There are usually two or three bosses on board when it comes to our lives, and they're often in conflict. Maybe one is an intrinsically motivated boss, who is deeply congruent and in sync with your most important life values. This boss is a pretty cool, laid-back lady, 
has her office in the right hemisphere of your brain for the most part, driving you and what you do with awe and curiosity, as well as the hunt for a certain kind of magic that makes you feel most alive and makes you feel most connected to the world and to other people and, and, and everything else. But there's also the other left, more left-brain boss that thinks she can make things happen by berating, critiquing, and finding fault with you. Left brain equals language. So this is a very thinky, languagey boss. This lady is also a tad deluded. Deluded because not really in touch with the big picture of whatever domain she's working in. This boss often becomes a kind of inner slave driver, a tyrant. I think she becomes like that because she really does believe that there's a simple or complicated system or... Uh, series of procedures that you have to follow, goddammit, and if you just follow the rules and stop procrastinating, you lazy sack of shit, all will be good. When our inner bosses play fair and play kind with us, we get our best work done and everyone is happy. Unfortunately, this is somewhat rare with regard to inner managers. The good news is that they can be sent on a management training course. I don't know, psychotherapy maybe is one of those, uh, to learn how to be more of, well, more of a mensch, to use that Yiddish word, right? More decent, more more humane, uh, more kind, and, and, and less of a Mussolini or a Milosevic. I love the fact that Stafford wrote his poem the way it is about his threads 26 days before he died at the age of 79 in 1993 that he was still clearly at the time living so fully and meaningfully right up until the very end of his life and he didn't stop writing poems as death approached in fact he wrote a poem called are you mr william stafford on the 18th of august the day he died. And this poem ends with these incredible lines. You can't tell when strange things with meaning will happen. I'm still here writing it down, just the way it was. You don't have to prove anything, my mother said. Just be ready for what God sends. I listened and put my hand out in the sun again. It was all easy. Well, it was yesterday, and the sun came. Why? It came. Grass. And I sang and danced about a 